0: This season of Out Alive is brought to you by Garmin. Stay tuned to the end of the show where you'll hear this bonus survival story.
1: I couldn't walk more than 10 steps without collapsing. I was in a really bad spot because I had no cell service. I, I know it's a life-threatening condition, and I don't, I don't think I would have made it through the night in the, in the condition I was in.
0: In all the accidents we've examined on this podcast, there's one thing they all have in common. Trauma changes people. Bones heal, wounds close, but the scar tissue runs deeper than what shows up on the body. Life goes on, but not in the same way it used to. That's the nature of trauma, and for most, it sits like a lead weight. But today's story is different. Today's story is about courage— and how one man set out to prove that trauma doesn't have to wreck us. In some ways, it can make you stronger.
2: I made a decision to survive. When you're in that survival mode. The, the idea of dying wasn't in my head.
0: I knew immediately it was the worst case scenario. I was in a fight for my life situation.
2: Whenever you walk out on these trails, you're in their house.
0: I'm Louisa Albanese and you're listening to Out Alive by Backpacker. In each episode of this podcast, we'll bring you real stories of real people who survived the unsurvivable.
3: I saw the rope zip through the rappel ring and I couldn't do anything.
0: Learn what went wrong, what went right, and how you can escape if the worst case scenario happens to you.
2: There is no way we would find anybody alive.
4: A thing that people ask me all the time is, you know, how long have I been climbing or when did I learn to climb? And I say in a little bit of a, a snarky way, I say I never forgot.
0: As a kid growing up in Connecticut, Malcolm Daly climbed anything he could get his hands and feet on. Before he could walk, it was the coffee table. Later, he graduated to the great hemlock trees in the family's backyard, and then, As a teenager, he discovered rock climbing. In
4: 1969, my parents put me on a a traveling summer camp out to the west, and um, one of our stops was in the Grand Teton National Park where I took a climbing lesson. Instantly, I was climbing 5'8", which at the time wasn't too shabby. And it just sort of launched it from there. Climbing was my life. I worked in retail shops. I've been a sales rep, a mountain guide, all that stuff. Owned my own climbing gear company called Trango and one of my sales reps at that time was a guy named Jim Danini super famous alpinist um, opened a lot of routes in Patagonia and Alaska you know a classic Danini route is mixed up with rock climbing and ice climbing and snow climbing and descents and dealing with storms and avalanches and things like that Danini's been one of the best in the world
0: Danini was a renowned alpinist at the time, and Malcolm, a well-known personality in the climbing community. They were friends, and partnering up for an Alaskan objective made sense. Here's Jim Danini.
3: Malcolm's fortitude is off the charts. He is a person that is just super positive. Anyone who ever met Malcolm or has dealt with him, has climbed with him, has been in a social scene with him, or has worked with him, he always accentuates the positive part of things.
4: So we were at a trade show and just looked at him and said, Jim, I want to go to Alaska. I, I'd never been to go climb there. I'd done some glacier peaks and things like that, but I'd never actually, you know, set out to do an alpine climb and do a first descent.
0: The pair set their sights on a new route on Mount Hunter, a 14,000-foot peak a few miles south of Denali in the Alaska Range. They set up base camp on the remote Tokusitna Glacier and settled in. But up close, their intended route up Mount Hunter looked unappealing. Instead, another nearby feature caught their attention, a 3,500-foot cliff on a steep, snow-laden peak known to locals as Thunder Mountain.
3: Thunder Mountain was very beautiful and had a beautiful ice line that had not been done. You know, in Alaska, at that time of year, it doesn't get truly dark. So we decided to do it in one push, meaning we were going to go from our base camp, hopefully, up to the summit and back down to the base camp without stopping. Since we were doing it in one push, we didn't bring any bivouac gear. We didn't bring any tents or sleeping bags with us. The idea was to go with light loads and go faster. And we had perfect weather and a good plan, and we thought everything would go well.
4: The route started out with about a thousand feet of pretty steep snow climbing, sort of a cone at the base of a, of a gully system. 25, 30 foot um, steep ice section that was super rotten and, and scary, and we had to do a detour around that. Mixed terrain, sort of, you don't know whether you're ice climbing or rock climbing, and you're doing both at the same time. We moved really well through that. It's, it was good climbing, and we were good at it. You know, we were we were good climbers. Um, that led to a kind of a break with a steep Kuar gully system that led into this awesome, beautiful vertical ice ribbon, uh, which was sort of the, the the crown jewel of the route. It was just beautiful. Anybody who looked at it would say, "Man, I would love to climb that." We were three pitches up that, and I was leading the last pitch. And, and I was on that top of that section of, of ice, which um, was really rotten. It had been in the sun. I had called down to Jim uh, saying, I'm glad we're getting out of here. It was about 9 in the morning, maybe 9.30. Things were starting to melt out of the snow above us. I recall being in a what
3: I call a semi-hanging belay. I had an ice screw in as Malcolm was climbing what we thought would be the final difficult pitch before easy snow slopes to the summit.
4: I'd put one ice screw in that section of rotten ice and it really was rotten. You could just sort of punch your arm through it. was really frothy and it wasn't good. And I knew it was a bad ice screw, but there was no option. I'd looked around, there just wasn't anything to do. My right foot was kicked into the kind of the frothy, crappy ice. And with my right arm, I was trying to find something solid to make the, the final move of the climb. And that's when I think I got hit by something.
3: And then all of a sudden, I heard a yell. And I looked back up, and Malcolm had the lead rope on, plus a trail line. And I saw both ropes coming down towards me. And the next thing I knew, I saw Malcolm himself heading right towards me.
4: As soon as that screw pulled, there was 80 feet of slack. And when I went flying down past Jim, I, I took it probably a 200 footer.
3: Ice came down, Malcolm flew past me, hit me on the way by, and I was bent over and I felt nauseous, and I couldn't understand why I was nauseous. Then I looked down and I saw blood on my Gore-Tex suit. When Malcolm went past me, he had crampons on, and the mono point, the single point on his crampon, went about two inches into my thigh, and that's why I was nauseous. I finally overcame the nausea, and I looked down and I saw Malcolm hanging far below me, slumped over on steep ice, and I thought that he was probably dead. And I also looked down and I saw that the rope going to Malcolm was cut halfway through. I yelled at Malcolm, and there was no response. And I thought, well, we're 2,500 feet above a remote glacier. What am I going to do now? All of a sudden, he woke up, and he yelled up to me. Did I fall? <laughs> I yelled down to Malcolm, yes. And he said, was I leading? And I guess, yes. And I said, Malcolm, you've got to put a nice screw and tie yourself to it and untie the rope so I can get down to you he did that, it took him quite a long time to do it. I pulled the rope up, rappelled down to Malcolm on a 70 degree ice slope.
4: All of a sudden, things got, shit got real, right? Both my legs were shattered, right? I, I just, it was they were numb and tingly and it didn't hurt all that much. I think adrenaline is an incredible painkiller. I guess if you're really injured, pain doesn't matter all that much.
0: Pain or not, the situation was not looking good. Malcolm had landed in a precarious position at nearly 10,000 feet on the side of a little known peak high over the remote west branch of the Tokusitna Glacier. There wasn't another climbing party for miles around, and the closest air traffic passes about 10 miles north over the Cahiltna Glacier and the staging ground for those attempting to climb Denali. But there was one glimmer of hope. Paul Roderick, a pilot for the Talkeetna air taxi and personal friend had flown the pair to the base camp a few days prior. Throughout their trip, Paul had flown over to check on Jim and Malcolm, but he'd already checked in that morning when the weather was clear and the climbing had been smooth. They didn't expect Paul to return for at least another day.
3: When I got to him, Malcolm in his usual, his glasses half full, not half empty, said to me, well, I've got a compound fibula tibula on my left leg, and I think I've shattered my right foot and I have a broken finger, but that doesn't count.
4: We splintered my leg with um, with, with one of my ice axes and a roll of tape and um, tried to self-rescue. The idea was to
3: lower Malcolm down to the ledge system and down to the glacier. Once he got into space and he was hanging free, I could lower him 150 feet down to that ledge and it was fine. But the next... 2,300 or so vertical feet was broken up terrain. And we realized that it would be impossible with his injuries. He wouldn't be able to take the pain. And we found out later from doctors that it would have killed him if we had tried to do that. So the only option was to leave Malcolm on this ledge and get some help.
4: I got kind of choked up, and I'll bet Jim did too, you know, both of us realizing. You know, that's that's where I am. If I don't get rescued, I'm I'm dead. So
3: I stuffed Malcolm's legs into one of our packs, gave him all of my extra clothing, tied him into the ledge, and then started
4: down to try and get help we tied both of our ropes together and I lowered Jim down 400 feet. And by the time we got to that end of that, I had to untie the rope and let it go. You know, for a climber, it's crazy to realize that, you know, the rope, this thing that's this, this, the symbol of mountaineering partnerships, you've got to let it go.
0: Jim's progress down the glacier was slow. His injured leg was a hindrance, and the cut rope meant he had to set up twice as many rappels as usual, leaving behind more and more gear as he went.
3: I could no longer make rappels. I had no anchors to make rappels with. So I left the rope, fixed over an overhang, and I downclined that last 800 feet with no rope. Now, it's the kind of climbing that an experienced climber can do without a rope, but it's not easy. So I had to go very, very slowly. Because if I fell once, I was not going to be able to stop. So I made it down. Once I was there, I realized I was safe. But I looked up and I saw high cirrus, high clouds, coming in from the southwest. Having climbed in Alaska many times, I knew that clouds coming in from the southwest signal a storm arriving.
4: Jim's out of sight. I'm 2,500 feet up this cliff, and uh, I, don't, I don't know what's going to happen. And these storms will usually last a few
3: days, and I thought that I'll be here for a few days, but Malcolm will be up there slowly dying, freezing to death in that bivouac. So these thoughts, when we were going through my head, it was about 8 or 9 o'clock at night, And all of a sudden, I heard a a plane engine. I thought, oh, my God. And I saw a plane coming in, and I
4: realized it was Paul. Turns out that our pilot, Paul Roderick, he'd been flying some fuel into the base camp for Denali. But instead of flying straight back, his spidey sense went off. He got this creepy, you know, the hairs on his neck. And he said, I got to go check on those guys.
3: And he made that left-hand turn at the last second and that's what enabled him to see me on the glacier and land to pick me up. You know, <laughs> I am far from being a religious person, but it was very fortuitous because, yes, the storm did come in and the next day it was cloudy and he wouldn't have been flying.
0: From the air, Jim and Paul called the ranger station in Denali and a rescue was initiated.
4: I'm up on the ledge, and as it starts to get dark, it started to snow, and um, I was not in a good spot. I was in the middle of of a funnel, right? There's these snow slopes that are above me, and it funneled down through this kind of gully system where the ice ribbon had been. I was right at the throat of that, right in that gun barrel blowy snow piles up on ledges and then all of a sudden you know it starts to fall and you get these very light fine snow avalanches and so and that would come down on me and you know it gets into your clothes and it kind of pushes behind me on the ledge and i had to like scoop out to get back on the ledge i was on and you know every time one of these would come down it was you know i'd have to deal with it and um the good thing was it kept me busy right all night i was up you know kind of clearing snow out of my clothes and things like that. I was exercising. I was, I was working this and um, I had a wide mouth water bottle. And every time I'd take a sip or two, I'd put snow back in there and put it inside my jacket to melt more snow. So I was staying hydrated. I was busy.
0: Denali National Park Mountaineering Rangers, personnel from the Alaska Rescue Coordination Center, the Air National Guard and Park Service helicopter pilots sprung into action. Ralph Tingey was the Associate Regional Director for operations for the National Park Service in Alaska at the time. During Malcolm's rescue, he was in his office in Anchorage coordinating logistics and rescuers from afar. Here's Ralph.
5: It's no no light thing to uh, pull off a rescue up there. The weather can be horrendous. And many times you just can't do it. You wait and wait for, for days and, and people die.
0: Rescue crews now face the dilemma of how to get Malcolm off the mountain. And the best bet was to perform a short haul when a rescuer is suspended by a cable beneath a helicopter in order to access and airlift the patient to safety. But the flight conditions and Malcolm's location made a short haul incredibly difficult and dangerous for a pilot to pull off.
4: The helicopter from Denali um, rescue team was flying around seeing if they could short haul me off. It was too tight, it was too steep there, and it was beyond the protocol of the Park Service to have a longer rope or fly any closer. And so that pilot Instead of trying to figure out whether he could short haul me, he was looking at seeing whether they could land some rescuers on the ridge above me and then lower them to me and then pull me up to them. And he is the rotor concussion, set off an avalanche on the slope right above me and came down and hit me. And, um, you know, they were sure they'd kill me. Unfortunately, it was steep enough, it was like I was behind the waterfall, right? And it literally, I mean, it kind of pounded me and stuff, but most of it went right past me. It's like hanging in that. And all the, there were a bunch of rescuers down there, and they all had to scramble. Nobody got hurt, but the pilot just said, no, we can't do this.
0: Malcolm's position on the mountain made him hard to reach, but the impending storm forced the rescuers to act fast. Daryl Miller, chief mountaineering ranger, knew that time was running out.
2: It was very technical from the bottom with rockfall and that the rescuers were going to be put in immediate danger. So the ground rescue part of it wasn't a very safe alternative.
5: The weather wasn't really great, and our llama helicopter was just about at the limit of its capability in in getting in there underneath to swing in. And the pilot was not comfortable with doing that.
0: Without a pilot on board, the District Ranger refused to give the go-ahead for a short-haul rescue. But Daryl Miller fought back. He contacted a replacement pilot, Carl Cotton. Here's Daryl.
2: You have an incident command that decides that we can't do a short-haul and that's the only thing that's gonna save Malcolm's life, in my in my view. And I'm basing that on many, many rescues. I've never seen one so complicated, but then so easy in the sense that it's the only way we're gonna get Malcolm out.
5: The District Ranger backed the pilot and said, man, I don't think we can do this. And so Daryl Miller called me, being in charge of the rescue operation, and said, we have found the alternate pilot in Los Angeles, and he has been dropping telephone poles into holes from 200 feet up, and he is confident that he can drop a ranger in there. Would you override the district ranger's decision and allow us to contact him and bring him up here on an airplane? And I said, yes, I'll take responsibility for that.
0: And so the alternate pilot, Carl Cotton, boarded a plane from LA headed for the Alaska Range. Meanwhile, Malcolm was on the ledge succumbing to the frigid temperatures.
4: It was zero degrees these nights. It was, you know, maybe a little below. As I started to get cold, I said, wow, you know, I, I, need, to, I need to make some decisions here. What am I gonna do? I was still up there by myself alone with no possibility of getting myself down. I think the important thing for me was that I I decided I was going to live. I knew that I was probably going to lose both feet to frostbite, but I didn't perseverate on that at all. I knew that, you know, I'd done everything I could for my feet. You know, I made a plan to stay warm. I made an exercise plan, and I I couldn't stand up and jump around on the ledge and do jumping jacks, but I decided that I'd do 100 windmills with one arm and then 100 windmills with the other arm and then 100 crunches on the ledge. I also had the, the great fortune to know some very, very athletic amputees who've lost one or both feet. Having that image of somebody having a life beyond an amputation that was my path to the future. That was my door. You know, my, my wife and the two kids, I, I kind of could feel their energy. I knew that uh, they knew that I was up there and the energy I knew that was coming from them was palpable. It literally, you know, I it felt like standing in front of a warm stove. I could feel that energy. It made it easier for me to deal with what I had to deal with in order to live. And decided I could be an amputee.
0: With helicopter pilot Carl Cotton in from LA, all that was left to wait for was a weather window to pull off the short haul. Early in the morning after Malcolm's second night on the ledge, that window finally arrived. Here is Daryl Miller.
2: So after a couple days of really inclement weather, there wasn't a cloud or anything. So I got Carl up early in the morning and him and I flew into the range. I asked him what he thought. He said he needed a longer rope. And normally we use, you know, around 100 feet and he needed 200 feet. But we got the permission. We cut the rope 200 feet, make sure we have enough rotor clearance. But even if everything works, Malcolm still had to be a
5: survivor. When you look at Thunder Mountain, it's just a vertical cliff. And so you actually have to uh, swing the ranger in. And that means you have to stop the helicopter inches before the wall. And any little updraft, any wind would be a, a horrible disaster.
4: So here comes this helicopter with 200 feet of rope and somebody swinging around below it. So they had to land the rescuer on the slope a couple hundred feet below me. He climbed up to me and he's got a top rope belay right from the helicopter. And we flew off, right? He pulled me up and and, uh, flew down to the glacier.
2: Malcolm was a a lucky man. Everything worked. Uh, They got him off and took him to the hospital. And the rest was history.
5: We were able to pull it off and save a life. To have a a clear weather window, to be able to pull off a rescue like this is truly a miracle. What
4: I didn't know at the time was that there was a big low-pressure area moving into the Gulf of Alaska, and uh, three or four hours after they got everybody off the glacier and wrapped up the rescue, a big front moved in and shut down the entire Alaska range for seven days. It's amazing for
2: me, he lived because he, he was freezing to death, obviously, because his feet froze. Even after when they were cutting his boots off and everything, he didn't show any pain, which was amazing.
3: If it had been me on the ledge, I don't think I would have handled it as well as Malcolm did.
0: Here's Jim Denini. I
3: asked him when the helicopter landed, I said, Malcolm, how are you? Goes, oh, yeah, I'm great, great. I said, how do you feel? And he says, well, you know, my... My shoulders are a little tired. I said, what what do you mean? Here's a guy that has these major injuries to his legs. He's talking about his shoulders being a little sore. Oh, he said the first night, their spin drift avalanches came down me all night long, and and I had to keep getting the snow off of me, and that's why they're sore. But he was smiling. And I said, Malcolm, you're an amazing guy.
0: Malcolm spent a few weeks in the hospital, and a number of months later, still in a wheelchair, he went ice climbing. As time passed, Malcolm got back into rock climbing too, but it was painful and inconvenient. Two years after the fall, the decision to amputate his right foot was almost a no-brainer.
4: You know, knowing that I could lead a good, vibrant, full, soulful, physical life was, I think, the kernel that got me going and then came up with the idea for Paradox and turned it into an organization.
0: In 2007, Paradox Sports was born with friends Timmy O'Neill and DJ Skelton. Malcolm founded the organization to provide adaptive climbing opportunities for individuals of all ability levels. The nonprofit grew exponentially, and in addition to his work with Paradox, Malcolm has served as a peer counselor for dozens of individuals facing amputation.
4: The whole idea is we want to get people to be able to do the things they want to do with the people they want to do it with when they want to do it, right? Because there's so many barriers to people with disabilities. You know, there are physical barriers, there's financial barriers, there's emotional barriers and stuff. And so our vision was to build that community. We actually make a difference, you know? And how many times in the world can you actually make a difference? Um, It's a pretty, pretty cool thing. And it all started with falling in 200 feet in Alaska.
0: This season of Out Alive is brought to you by Garmin. Together, we bring you a bonus survival story from someone who made it out alive thanks to their Garmin inReach satellite device. Dwayne Conan was 165 miles into a rugged 206-mile ultramarathon when he suddenly was overcome with pain, dizziness, and vomiting. Here's Dwayne to share his story.
1: I ran the Bigfoot 200 in the uh, Cascade of Washington, and uh, essentially goes from Mount St. Helens um, past Mount Adams. And uh, I was 71 hours into the race. I couldn't uh, go to the bathroom anymore. And I collapsed, and my, my bladder started convulsing. And uh, it immediately just put me into a, a ton of pain. And I couldn't walk more than 10 steps without collapsing and having to, to drop to my knees. And then it would. Passed for a little bit and i could lay down and rest but it would still be throbbing and i'd still be in a lot of pain and um i was in a really bad spot because i had no cell service um i was six miles from the last aid station on these beat up trails that were nothing more than game trails i was just laying there in pain and the only thing i could think of was uh, to give my pacer who was with me my my uh garmin inreach um and he pushed the SOS button and was able to communicate directly with their, with their people, and also with my wife. And so they right away let um, search and rescue services know, and um, they uh, sent out a medic. And the race medic got to me after eight hours. Eventually a Black Hawk helicopter got to me um, four hours later and dropped a medic down and lifted me out of there and took me to the emergency room. And there they, they, they patched me up and I was, I was okay. The best thing was for, for my peace of mind was knowing that there was somebody that knew I was in trouble and knowing that, that they were working the problem. And also having the comfort of being able to text my wife and talk to her made, just made a huge difference just to have that, that contact with the outside world. You know, if it wouldn't have been uh, rescued by the helicopter at that time, I, I would have had to spend all night there. I, I know it's a life-threatening condition, and I don't, I don't think I would have made it through the night in the, in the condition I was in. So I was definitely thankful that um, I had the, the inreach with me.
0: I'm Backpacker Skills Editor Zoe Gates, and here's a safety tip from Garmin. Incidents on the trail can range from inconvenient to disastrous. So how do you know when you can trigger an SOS? Can you walk back to your car or wait out the storm? If so, don't push that call button. But if your life or safety are immediately at risk, you can use your satellite communicator to send a message to a loved one. If danger is imminent and you're unable to send a message, activate an SOS. This episode was produced by Zoe Gates, along with me, Louisa Albanese. Our story editor and sound designer was Andrew Mayers. Our script writer is Casey Lyons. This episode was mixed by Jason McDaniel from Electric Audio Inc. Thank you to Malcolm Daly, Jim Danini, Ralph Tingey, and Daryl Miller for sharing your stories and perspectives. If you enjoyed this episode of Out Alive, please subscribe and leave us a review.